Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. What do slave labor, the Mesopotamian goddess of heaven, and intellectual property rights all have in common? The answer is cheese. Here with me to discuss this and more is Paul Kinstead, author of Cheese and Culture, A History of Cheese and Its Place in Western Civilization. Paul Kinstead, welcome. Well, thank you. Great to be here. So you're a professor at the University of Vermont, but at one time you were a food scientist with cheese as one of the issues you had Mm -hmm. to contend with, but not a food historian. uh, And yet uh, you were led to write this book. That's right. Um, It was actually 10 years ago in 2002 when I was writing my first book, American Farmstead Cheese, which is really a science textbook that was aimed at the the traditional farmstead artisan cheesemakers that had had just really um, resurged in America after having disappeared for a better part of a century. And I wrote a textbook for them. um, And as an afterthought, I included a couple of chapters on cheese history. And I thought that that would provide good context for who these new cheesemakers were, these traditionalists. And and I began to write these two chapters and found immediately that it was overwhelming and that there's no way you can cover the history of cheese in two small chapters. So I went back to the University of Vermont after completing the writing of that first book and developed a course called Cheese and Culture that I have been teaching to my undergraduates since 2005 And out of the course and the research that I did for the course, then that became the inspiration for this book, Cheese and Culture, which, as you say, is is far afield from simple cheese science and technology, my area of expertise. It draws in lots of of collateral areas that that are really far afield of, of my own expertise in many respects. Well, you've got geography, you've got anthropology. I mean, when we say culture here, or when you say culture here in the title, I mean, you're really embracing all of this. And you, you wouldn't think of this in this way. I certainly didn't before I picked up your book. But cheese as a lens to sort of march us through time, which is what you've, you've done here, uh, is really mm-hmm. quite fascinating. So let's go back and start talk about some of the origins of, of cheese making, you know, where and how it all began. Yeah, and, and to, to reconstruct that, one has to go right back to the origins of agriculture itself, uh, which occurred about 9,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent, the, the, the Middle East region, um, where Neolithic peoples for the first time settled down and started cultivating crops, wheat, rye, barley. And the cultivated fields then attracted small ruminants that are, are very prevalent in that area of the, of the world, sheep and goats that love to graze on these grains. And it didn't take long before the Neolithic farmers, these new farmers, took these small ruminants into captivity, began to herd them. And over the next 1,500 years or so, from 8,500 to about 7,000 BC, this is still the the, the new Stone Age, they began to breed these animals for, for traits, selectively breed. And one of the traits eventually was for milk production. And undoubtedly, initially, they were breeding these animals to produce milk to feed for their very, their very young children because the adult population at this point, the human population, was universally lactose intolerant. So the adults couldn't drink milk, but the very young children could. And so by about 7,000 BC, there's this uh, clear evidence of, of herding animals and milk production that suddenly increases dramatically. And at the same time, the Neolithic peoples in this area discover pyrotechnics or how to apply very high temperatures to materials like clay and it opens up the door to pottery. And the making of stable large pots then made it much, much easier to milk the animals, collect the milk from multiple animals and store the milk, which in the warm ambient temperature of the Middle East, that milk would not have remained a liquid very long. It would have naturally curdled due to the lactic acid bacteria that are always present in raw milk. And, and it didn't take the Neolithic herders very long to figure out that once that milk curdled and if they broke it up, it separated into uh, Miss Muffet's proverbial curds and whey, <laughs> the whey being the liquid portion of the milk and the curds being the, the semi-solid portion. And the curds, if the Neolithic adults consumed them, they could tolerate modest amounts of the curds. And it opened the door for them to then take advantage of milk production in the form of, of curds. Um, And that gave them an enormous competitive advantage that they culturally conserved from 7,000 BC on wherever they went. And and the Neolithic peoples about this time began to scatter in every direction. And they took that cheesemaking and dairying technology with them 
and, and, and conserved it because it was such an important advantage in terms of nutrition. So we have uh, cheese making really connected. This is what I found fascinating in this story. The pots made a huge difference. If you didn't have the pot, what are you going to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, which I just really hadn't thought about. Yeah, you have to have it somewhere where you can collect it. Uh, of course, my whole thing was about what do they do about refrigeration and all of that. But as we learned through your book, uh, as as these people scattered and began to think about how to make cheese in various temperatures, that they began to come up with creative ways of doing this. Uh, before we march forward in history, got to get back to this uh, goddess of heaven and how she played a part in uh, the cheese making and the interest in cheese and uh, people's becoming interested in making cheese a product unto itself. Mm, yeah, mm. this is this is a, a really fascinating part of the story. I had no idea it existed until I stumbled across it. That that the uh, we, we we now fast forward from seven thousand BC to to about four thousand BC, the fourth millennium BC, and at this point, Neolithic peoples have moved into what is now southern Iraq, what is called Mesopotamia the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers down by the Persian Gulf. And a civilization, mankind's first civilization, arises in this Mesopotamian region in, in around 4000 BC, characterized by large city-states. These are, are massive metropolises with thousands of people, big walled cities with impressive uh, um, monumental architecture, a huge quantum leap in, in the human species. Um, humanity had done nothing like this previous to this point. And the first great city-state to arise was the city-state of Uruk. And at the center of Uruk was the temple complex that rose high above the city, could be seen for miles across the, the, the Iraqi desert. Very impressive. And at the center of the temple... Um, mythology was this goddess you mentioned, mentioned, the goddess of the harvest and fertility, Inanna. And in the, the Uruk mythology, the Sumerian mythology that underpinned this civilization, this first civilization, Inanna marries a shepherd boy named Demuzi who convinces her to become his wife because he says, I can supply you with dynamite dairy products. I can give, I can give you... <laughs> fermented milks and yogurts, I can give you butter and I can give you cheeses and a you know, number of different types of cheeses. And, she, and in the mythology, he wins Inanna's heart. Inanna turns down the farmer who offers you know, a whole range of craft beers. How do you like that? <laughs> That's interesting. So Inanna chooses cheeses and, and she marries this shepherd in the mythology and makes him the first king of this first city-state. And she promises him that if he keeps her supplied with cheese and butter, she will bless the harvest. She will, she will keep the storehouses filled to abundance and times will be good for the city-state. And this becomes institutionalized in this first city-state and then is transferred to other city-states that arise in the region that become the Sumerian civilization. And basically, every king of Uruk from that point on was believed to become the the husband of Inanna, and, and each year there was a celebration to celebrate that marriage rite. And the job of the king and the ruling elite, the priests, were to keep Inanna happy, to have a system to procure, to produce and procure cheese, stockpile it, warehouse it, and then have it available for 365 days of the year to sacrifice to Inanna. And what that meant was that this, this city-state had to have a, a whole network of satellite farms, they had to have a contractual relationship with a whole series of shepherds that would milk the animals, goats, sheep, and cows, produce the cheese, deliver the cheese on schedule. Then they had to inventory it in, in a massive warehouse complex attached to the temple. And all of this had to be administered, and it was very complex. And some of the, the first proto-writing that gave rise to, to mankind's first writing comes out of Inanna's temples, and some of these proto-cuneiform tablets are contracts with shepherds to uh, oversee the, the production of cheese and the production of, of lambs and, and uh, young animals and so forth. And it's just incredible that, that cheese was wrapped up in this, in this system 
that gave rise to to this quantum leap in in the human condition. Well, one of the the strong strains in your book is is tying cheese to commerce and and its influence on local economies. And I thought that story about uh, the goddess uh, leave it to a woman, by the way, to start commerce uh, that right. that, uh, that was very interesting because it was very much. Uh, it had the mystical part of it. It had the love of the of the food uh, as part of the story, but also this complexity that you mentioned in terms of how to distribute and make it, all of that, and to sustain all the people in those communities. Plus, that's right. Plus, uh, the goddess herself. It, it wasn't just religion. It, it was it was the economy of the city that was built around this this redistributive system. Um, yeah. So speaking of religion, uh, I was just – you have so many quotes, biblical quotes, <laughs> referencing cheese. I, you know, I know I've been to Sunday school. I just never paid attention to this before. So <laughs> I was amazed that in biblical times there are so many concrete references to cheese. Talk about cheese in biblical times. <laughs> yeah, and, and one of the things that, that uh, really surprised me as I wrote the book was the recurring themes, a number of recurring themes that crop up time and time again that, that influence cheesemakers and cheese history. And the religious practices, the spiritual history of humankind is intertwined almost from the beginning with cheese history. And I was looking for a, a way to, to link this 9,000-year narrative together. And as, a, as I looked at all these different quotes from the Bible that you just referred to that could be used to sort of frame different epics in the cheese story, uh, it became this wonderful unifying factor that, that uh, you know, right from the beginning, Cain and Abel, the, the story of the origins of, 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 of humanity and the Garden of Eden, that that Cain tilled the fields, Abel kept the flocks, and that that uh, that that begins this whole Neolithic farming era that then gives rise to cheese making, and then Abraham coming out of Ur, the great city, Mesopotamian city, Ur of Chaldees, um, which was a sister city to Uruk, which we just talked about, part of that same civilization. He came out of he came out of a city that had enormous. Um, sacrificial systems in place with cheese and butter to their gods. Um, so he was familiar with that. And, and when he, he uh, migrates to the, to the Levant, to, to what is now Israel and, and Palestine, um, you see that reflected in, in um, you know, some of the biblical stories of, of serving um, cheese or curds to, to his angelic hosts and the Lord, and Lord of hosts who come to visit him. Um, David and Goliath, another thousand years later, Bringing cheese to the to the army of Saul fighting the Philistines, which then you know, raises um, um, David's career mete- meteorically, and he becomes the, the great king of Israel. Um, but uh, you know, and and on and on and on. Job and and his 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 uh, references to cheese and 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 likening the birth process to the curdling, the milk coagulation process, uh, and right into the Christian era. So. The, uh, the Bible has a, a lot to say about cheese that was really intriguing. Well, and you are the man to know about it. Uh, much more with you and, and a conversation really about New England and its cheese history and cheese current times. Uh, I'm Callie Crossley. We're talking about cheese with Paul Kinstead. He's a professor of food science at the University of Vermont. His new book is Cheese and Culture, A History of Cheese and Its Place in Western Civilization. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Love our contributors. That means you and Skinner Auctioneers and Appraisers presenting their auction of 20th Century Design, Saturday, June 23rd, featuring works by Tiffany, George Jensen, and George Nakashima. Online bidding available at SkinnerInc.com. And Independent Lens. Learn how San Francisco dealt with the crushing AIDS epidemic that swept through the city in the early 80s. Don't miss We Were Here on Independent Lens, Thursday at 10 on WGBH 44.
and the members of the WGBH Sustainer Program, whose gifts of $5, 10 or $20 a month make up the most reliable income for the programs you love on 89.7. Learn more about sustaining membership at WGBH.org. I'm Eric Glass. On This American Life, we bring you reports from the world's most dangerous battlefields. Ow, stop it! He's pinching your cheek right now. Pressure pointing, actually. Like the backseat of the family car. Three brothers, with the oldest in the middle. And basically, I'm the mediator. How do you mean? I'm actually not sure what mediator mean. I just felt like saying it. Documenting the stories that don't fit into the daily news shows, This American Life. Saturday morning at 11, here on WGBH Radio. Support WGBH right now and you'll be entered to win a trip for two to High Clear Castle, known on Masterpiece as Downton Abbey. Prize includes round-trip airfare from Lufthansa, a four-night stay at Vineyard at Stockcross in Newbury, England, and a private tour with brunch at High Clear Castle, hosted by the lady of the house, Fiona, Countess of Carnarvon. For your chance to win, visit WGBH.org. MIT's 100K Entrepreneurship Competition has generated billions in profit in its 23-year history. Hear what ideas this year's competitors came up with on Innovation Hub, Saturday morning at 7 here on WGBH Radio. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. We're talking about cheese, the 9,000-year-old history of cheese making, and the thousands of varieties of cheese, as Monty Python famously points out. Now, my good man, some cheese, please. Yes, certainly, sir. What would you like? Well, uh, how about a little Red Leicester? No. Danish Finberg? No. Czechoslovakian sheep's milk cheese? No. Venezuelan beaver cheese? Not today, sir, no. Well, let's keep it simple. Um, how about cheddar? Well, I'm afraid we don't get much call for it round these parts, sir. It's the single most popular cheese in the world. Not round these parts, sir. Here with me to talk about cheddar and more is Paul Kinstead. He's a professor of food science at the University of Vermont. His new book is Cheese and Culture, A History of Cheese and Its Place in Western Civilization. Uh, I happen to know that uh, you grew up eating a lot of cheddar, Professor. That's right. I grew up, grew up in Massachusetts right here, and we always had Vermont cheddar that uh, we absolutely loved, and I, I still do to this day. Um, cheddar actually has a really important uh place in the cheese-making history, and as does New England. And I wonder if you could uh, put New England's cheese-making in context for us about how what was happening here that was maybe different from other places and why. Yeah, the, uh, the New England colonies, Massachusetts Bay being the first one, was settled by Puritans uh, who were religious dissenters that uh, were seeking a, a city on a hill, as John Winthrop put it, a new, a new, new beginning a new culture, new society. And they, uh, the, the Puritan movement in England was heavily centered in East Anglia, which is northeast of London. And that region, uh, in the 200 years or so leading up to the Puritan immigration to Massachusetts, had become the most intense dairying region and cheesemaking region in England. They basically had the, a monopoly on the London market, which, which was the mega market for all foodstuffs in England at the time. And so the Puritans had a strong representation of dairy, dairy farmers and cheesemakers with them as they immigrated to Massachusetts, along with a strong representation from the merchant class from London. They were prosperous. They were uh, well capitalized. They came here, set up the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and then spread out to form Connecticut and Rhode Island, the, the greater New England colonies uh, thereafter. And cheesemaking was an important part of the agricultural economy. The problem that they experienced right off the bat was that, that their colony, Massachusetts, is not a very fertile place and the winters are cold and you can't grow the kind of cash crops that were being produced by other colonies in the, in the south and in the West Indies and so forth. So very quickly, they ran a trade deficit and ran by the 1640s into, into an economic depression. And they had to find a way to, 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 to uh, export products that, that had a market. And the market that, that was developing, the, the mega market of the time was the West Indies. And this was because of the sugar plantations that all the major powers, England, France, Holland, were developing uh, relentlessly because of the enormous popularity of sugar on the continent in Europe. And the sugar plantations had very, very labor-intensive, huge labor forces that very quickly became havens for or the, the, uh, the end, end uh, 
end, end result of, of, of this, the slave trade that developed around the, the plantation system. And it's, it's one of the absolutely tragic epics of American history that, that uh, this slave trade and the slave plantations developed and, and became such an important part of the economy. But for New England, what New Englanders could produce were food products, cheese, butter, uh, initially wheat, salted fish that began to be sent down to the, the West Indies to feed the population, the slave population. And what the merchants were able to trade their agricultural products for was molasses that could then be brought back to New England, fermented and distilled into rum, which became a very highly sought after distilled spirit and very profitable. And so the economy of New England by the 1660s, 1670s, 1680s was already really focusing on this connection with the West Indies, supplying the West Indies with food, producing rum, which had markets in the colonies themselves in Newfoundland to the north and then into England. But the real um, uh, lucrative market was on the west coast of Africa. Africa. And, and the tragedy was that that rum was then used to trade for slaves that were being sold that had been kidnapped from the interior of Africa, sold on the coast, and then transported to the West Indies to keep the slave sugar plantations running. And that became the backbone of the, of the, the, the New England economy for over 100 years. And cheese feeds into this economy um, as well as other agricultural products. And it, it just, uh, you know, it's this insidious relationship with the slave tra human tra trafficking that we find so appalling now was just, just the, way, the way the economy ran. And that then brought slaves to New England. You don't think of New England as being exactly. a, a major place. Yeah. Where no, a lot of people don't, yes. <laughs> a lot of people don't. But, but slave, black slaves were part of every aspect of the New England economy. Um, the, the numbers weren't huge, but they were pivotal players in every aspect of the economy, including cheesemaking. And in, in particular regions like Rhode Island, they became the predominant cheesemakers uh, on very large plantations that developed around the Narragansett Bay region, built on... The, 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 the rum trade, the slave trade, and all the wealth that accumulated, uh, about a dozen families became large landowners of uh, big farms with thousands of acres that were called the Narragansett Plantations, and they were run by slaves. And they produced two products, horse breeding, uh, uh, the Narragansett breed, which was very, very in, much in demand everywhere in, in the New World, and, they, and, and dairy farming and cheesemaking. And the Black African dairy maids, the women, became the great cheesemakers of the time. Their cheeses, the Rhode Island and Narragansett cheese, was famous throughout the colonies. Um, and and uh, that bit of information just stopped me in the book. I, I had never heard that. It stopped me too. I had <laughs> I had no idea. And, and it's it's part of the story of of cheese history that needs to be told. That American cheesemaking, you know, the foundations are built upon black dairy women, slave slaves that, that uh, really, really refined the cheesemaking technology. Let's uh, pause for a moment to talk about, you know, that slave labor. Those are slaves who were trained to be dairy maids. But you spent a lot of time talking about the development of dairy maids in general. That's M-A-I-D. Uh, I actually, you know, uh, other than they're in the song, the Christmas song, <laughs> I really had not thought about them Maid, in any real maids sense. Of, maids of milking. <laughs> maids right. of milking. But I hadn't really thought about uh, them in any real sense being integral to the commerce. I mean, it was down to the point where you have a piece of information, a, a letter or, or a suggestion from folks over in Europe about what the dairy maid ought to be like. It says the dairy maid ought to be loyal, of good repute, and clean. This is obvious to me, anyway. Mm -hmm. She ought to know her work and what relates to it. She ought not to allow under dairy maids or anyone else to take or carry away milk, butter, or cream, whereby the cheese will be less and the dairy will lose. But my point is, you spent a fair amount of time talking about these women were the cogs in making this cheese. Absolutely, and, <laughs> and especially in, in, in sort of Anglo cultures, in England and northwest France in particular. The women, the women were, the, were the cheese makers, and they became the professional cheese makers on the, on the medieval manners and, and the monastic manners that dominated the economy of northwest Europe and, and England. And they became the sort of the, the um, repositories of the expertise and, and the craft that was passed on from mother to daughter uh, and from, 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 um, from dairy maid to mistress. 
um, over the over the millennia, and that tradition of women being the cheesemakers that that had a fifteen hundred year tradition then gets transplanted to America, and the women became the cheesemakers in America for the next couple hundred years, uh, the dairy maids. That's just that was just mind boggling to me. Uh, all about their how important they were in this. So we've learned through your book that there's uh, geography matters uh, that. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, mysticism and religion matters in terms of getting emphasis on on this uh, food product. Uh, and workers matter. Labor, uh, there's an impact not only here in this country but ac- around the world as we start talking about slave trade and how it becomes a piece of the cheese-making story. And commerce, of course, mm-hmm. is all wrapped around this. Uh, what I was also fascinating about, because you spent a fair amount of time and may- perhaps you had some insight as a food scientist prior to this, is how the shaping, the actual making of the cheese now begins to change uh, in response to not only our needs as consumers, but, you know, what uh, what the folks who are making the cheese can do in an efficient way to make money. Uh, and that also leads to then various varieties of cheese. Uh, because i got to say, growing up, I, I probably just knew cheddar. <laughs> me, <laughs> but, me too. Yeah. Me too. Okay. And, and now we see how so much is developing. From the beginning, when you talk about the curds and whey, that seemed to be just the same style for a long time, and then it started to change. Yeah, che- cheesemaking <laughs> evolved over this long 9,000-year period. And as, as cheesemakers moved into new geographical regions, they, they had different constraints placed on them by the environment, by the temperature and humidity conditions, by the availability of salt, by the economic conditions, and who was, who was going to be consuming the cheese, someone right next door or someone very far away. And cheesemakers responded and changed their technology in ways that, that made sense for their, their cultural context. And, and their environmental context. And you can, you can follow that in different regions of Europe in particular and, and sort of see why cheesemakers went in a particular direction, why in the mountains, the alpine regions, they developed these, these hard um, wheel-shaped cheeses that we, we know of as you know, the, the Emmental, Swiss, Gruyere The stuff with cheeses. the rind on it and yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. They, were, they were tailor-made for that cultural context versus the 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 soft soft ripened types the you know the the dirty socks washed rind really aromatic cheeses and the bloomy rind the the breeze and the camemberts a very different cultural and economic and environmental context cheesemakers were ad- adapting their basic technologies in ways that made sense until we get to the 19th century when the scientific revolution kicks in and particularly in America also in Holland but I'll I'll just refer to America mm-hmm. because that's our that's our our uh, main focus right main now. Focus yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. And that that we as a culture embrace change and technology um, to a, to an enormous degree. That that once new technologies and the and the industrial revolution kicked in and new equipment was available, um, and the factory system came into being in terms of cheese making in 1851, change became part and parcel to, to surviving, that as new technologies developed to make cheese on a larger scale, more economical, a lower cost, everybody jumped on the bandwagon and, and implemented the technology and, and cheese has changed constantly. Um, well, it eventually led to it, so which is my point of bringing this up, to the craft single. That's, that's right. <laughs> I mean, that's that. I mean, that was the ultimate to me, like marrying technology with commerce and and what needed to happen for people to be able to get cheese. And, and we did this. <laughs> we did this with gusto. That that you know, change was progress. And even when I was growing up, that was still my parents grew up in the depression. Always talked about progress, even if they didn't like what was happening. They would, well, I guess that's progress. Well, all of all of the food system and all of American society was on this treadmill of progress. Um, and lots of good came out of that and a very abundant food supply and che- the cost of cheese came down to very low levels as the scale of production you know, reached the point where we now have cheese plants that produce a million pounds of cheese a day, a single manufacturing plant, mm. uh, and can produce a, at very low costs. But it did change the cheese. But well, what's interesting now is it changed the cheese to sort of go in your craft single way, which a lot of people feel is very commercial. And now we're back – 
to the handmade stuff that's sort of where it all started uh, because people have want more to know where their food comes from, who's making it, blah, blah, blah. And so here you are, Guy. It's all embodied in your whole life history. You could grew up next to a dairy farm. You grew up eating cheddar. Uh, maybe don't mm-hmm. you're not a snob mm-hmm. about craft singles, and now you're uh, about the business of raising up the artisanal cheeses that we hear about so much. Yeah, and part of that is because I'm a professor at Vermont, where you know the, has been at the, at the forefront of this resurgence of artisanal cheesemaking. And um, they have become my stakeholders over the last 30 years, and I've come to, to really appreciate and embrace what they're doing as, as an important part of the future of agriculture in, in Vermont and in the United States, this alternative approach. And it's, it's really um, you know, the consequence of a lot of concerns about the food system, particularly among young people, and the way we've been doing business, the way we've been treating the environment – you know, the, the, the way that we've centralized food production, particularly out west, and then truck everything back east, um, and the sustainability of that, and concerns about, uh, about um, animal welfare and, and worker welfare, and all these values that are, are very legitimate and, and are very much concern are being projected onto these alternative types of agriculture that do business differently. And a lot of it is, is moving back a step and re- re- reassessing some of the technologies and approaches that we've, we've very quickly applied um, without really thinking of the consequences. So the artisanal cheese movement is just, just the tip of the iceberg and a much larger cultural shift that's occurring in, in terms of, of the food system itself, which I think is really exciting. And from a consumer standpoint, is it just me or it seems to me that America is now – a nation of cheeseheads, and I mean not just craft singles, but they've expanded their palate with regard to these kinds of mini varieties of cheese. Absolutely. <laughs> um, in, in Vermont, we have you know 150 different cheeses made that that are just doing spectacularly. We across the country, artisan cheesemakers making types of cheese that I would never have been able to access as a kid. I would never have wanted to because I didn't appreciate them at the time. Now are available in, in every every market, major market in the country. And um, at the Vermont Institute of Artisan Cheese that I serve as co-director of, we train new cheesemakers who want to become artisan cheesemakers. And, and for the last eight years, it's just been a constant flow of new new folks interested in becoming the next generation of artisan cheesemakers. It's, this is a movement here to stay, and there's no end in sight. Well, a lot of information in your book. Got to know, favorite cheese at the moment. What's yours? I have to go back to my childhood and cheddar. <laughs> okay. I, I like a raw milk cheddar <laughs> aged a couple of years, two to three years. It would be wonderful. Nothing there better. you go. That's from the man who knows about cheese. I've been talking to Paul Kinstead about his new book, Cheese and Culture, A History of Cheese and Its Place in Western Civilization. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> Coming up, Jonathan Alsop tells us what wines complement the variety of cheeses we've been talking about. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. For our programs comes from you and Fruitlands Museum. Discover the heritage, nature, and art of New England at Fruitlands Museum in Harvard, Mass. The Concord Band performs Americana music every Thursday evening in July. More information at fruitlands.org. And Celebrity Series of Boston. It's for people who don't want to consume artistic junk food. Jack Wright, Director of Marketing and Communications. It's the kind of thing that makes you, when you pull into the driveway, makes you stay in the car longer than you planned on. That's the kind of thing we want communicated that we represent. GBH is helping us to present to this audience. To learn more, visit WGBH.org slash sponsorship. On the next Fresh Air, a far-right Christian radio talk show host who is trying to influence the Republican Party. We talk with New Yorker staff writer Jane Mayer about her new article profiling Brian Fisher, 
The talk show host whose anti-gay comments led to the resignation of Mitt Romney's foreign policy spokesperson, Richard Grinnell, who is gay. Join us. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. The June community campaign has ended here at WGBH. Isn't that great? Super. Really, really cool. And you are responsible for its great success. For other ways to support your community through WGBH, visit WGBH.org slash volunteer. And thanks. Grandpa, he threw the first ball out at Fenway Park. The very first First ball out. Ever. Ever. 100 years of legend and history of Fenway Park. Fridays on WGBH's Morning Edition. Welcome back. I'm Callie Crossley. Jonathan Alsop is with us. He's our wine guy and the founder of the Boston Wine School. Jonathan, why do wine and cheese go together? Why do wine and cheese go together? What a great question. Um, Well, one thing is that, you know, they're the answer to the same question. Um, You know, you've got a thousand gallons of fresh milk. You know, agriculturally, that's really good news. But, you know, let's say it's like the year 600 or something, you know. What are you going to do with that milk? What are you going to do with those calories? Well, you turn it into cheese and you can eat it two, three, five, eight, ten years from now. And wine is the same way. You know, if you let a vineyard just, um, you know, if you just leave a vineyard to its own design, you know, a vineyard will give you eight, ten, twelve tons of grapes per acre. That's a lot of grapes. You know, the question is, what are you going to do with those grapes and how are you going to preserve them and how are you going to, you know, push those calories into the future so that you don't lose them today and you're able to consume them later? So two two foods that of the earth, uh, very much a part of the locavore movement. Uh-huh. Jonathan's opening a bottle of wine. Yeah, just, and, just for the record, <laughs> just for the record, that's what that noise is there. And uh, they go together because uh, you know they they pair well together in in, in complementing. They're both coming from the earth. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and and they've been growing up side by side for, you know, as Paul was saying, they've been growing up, you know, wine and cheese have been together as a food match and a food idea for 8,000, 9,000 years. You know, when you think about tomato, you know, entering the Italian food culture, what, 500 years ago? <laughs> you know... That's relatively new as a food and wine match, you know, compared with wine and cheese, which have been going together. And we've been been working on this thing for 8,000 years. So we finally started to get some of it, uh, started to get some of it right. Well, as my first guest just mentioned, you know, just the uh, everybody's moving around and developing new techniques led to all these variety of Mm -hmm. cheeses that didn't exist way back when, when it was just your curds and whey. Yeah. but that means that there's also a variety of wines in which you can uh, match with the variety of cheeses. Yes, and you have <laughs> um, some geographical matches, you know, just like you would, you know, what's, you know, what's the perfect beer match with Texas barbecue? It's, you know, it's Lone Star beer, mm-hmm. right? Texas beer, Texas barbecue, it just goes together. We do the same thing when it comes to matching uh, wine and cheese. We'll really do that in a geographic way. And, you know, the closer on the map where the cheese is made, the closer it is to where the wine is made, it's almost always a sign of a really, really um, good match. So what are we pairing Vermont cheeses with? I mean, they're, they're wineries, as we know, in every state yes. of the union. But uh, well, yeah. Now, Vermont, I mean, when you say Vermont cheeses, there's I mean, a variety. People, of yes, course, yes, there's yes, a wide yes, range. Yes, there's yes. immediately you think of Cabot. Mm. And they make a great, you know, Cabot makes a great range of cheddar cheeses mm. from very mild, you know, young cheddars mm-hmm. to some of those older, almost, um, almost crunchy uh, cloth-bound, older cheddars that are really great with wine. Um, cheddar is one of those uh, cheeses that can kind of that can kind of go either way. Mm-hmm. You can have it with a really, really strong white wine, mm. like you could have it with a really powerful, you know, Chardonnay. 
um, or a really powerful. Um, there's a, a great uh, new uh, gra- uh, grape from Greece called Assyrtiko, mm. which is a white grape, but it's, it sounds like our word assertive. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what the grape is like. It's a it's really bold. strong white mm-hmm. grape. Mm-hmm. So, so in terms of cheddar, you can go with these strong white wines or a rosé wine or a light you know, red wine like Beaujolais. Uh, Pinot Noir is a great match with, I, I with like any Pinot of Noir. these cheddars. Good. But mm-hmm. the thing that's great mm-hmm. about cheddar and the thing that people love about it is that it's really, well, as you see, it's really, really flexible. You know, there's not, you know, there's not one, you know, I mean, it's even great with beer, you know, dark, yeah. malty beer. Um, it's a super compatible cheese. So um, cheddar's kind of the, I don't know, it's the typo? Is it the... Is typo the universal donor, universal recipient? I can't remember, but it's it's kind of the typo of cheese. You know, it goes with everything. Is this cheddar you brought here? Okay, so I brought. So what I brought is two wines and two cheeses. Let's try the first one here. Um, This is uh, a first of all, the wine we're having is a Zellbach. Riesling, mm-hmm. um, German Riesling, a little bit, a little, it's a not, tiny, not bit sugary, sweet. yeah, a little tiny bit, bit sweet, sweet. Mm-hmm. not sugary, mm-hmm. and we're matching it with, there you go, and we're matching it with um, uh, an aged Gouda. So this Ooh, is I a love Gouda. So this is a help yourself. This mm-hmm. is a twenty-six uh, month aged Gouda. So this Gouda that we're having here, this wine is from two thousand ten. Uh, this Gouda is from two thousand nine. So okay, che- so it's pretty close. So together. the cheese mm-hmm. is actually—I mm-hmm. mean, strange as that may, may seem—the cheese is actually older than the wine that we're pairing with it. And geographically, you know, this is a, this is a Rhine wine. Uh, these goudas are made on the, along the banks of the Rhine, maybe a little bit farther, you know, north from where this German Riesling comes from. But we're making a natural, natural geographical match. Here. Well, I, I'm happy because, you know, I'm not a Chardonnay person. Uh-huh. And I like to think about how you would, you know, how cheese goes with other whites. Yes. So happy to hear about the Greek one and this Riesling. I, ne- I don't think I would have gone with a slightly sweet yeah. one. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, <laughs> but the, um, do you t- but it's you feel very that, good. You feel, you, know. that cru- you feel that crunchiness yeah, in the Gouda? Yeah, yeah. As, as, as these cheeses age, like an aged Gouda or an aged Parmesan, what happens is the, um, so when people talk about being lactose intolerant, mm-hmm. what, that, what that means is that they have difficulty metabolizing lactose, right. which is the milk sugar. Well, one of the things that cheese does in the cheese-making process is, you know, the fermentation, you know, metabolizes and breaks up the lactose. Oh, so, so it's great. So, so cheese, you know, not just does it, making cheese doesn't just preserve cheese forward into time. You know, making cheese makes milk edible. For a huge portion of uh, a huge portion of the population that is naturally um, does not metabolize uh, lactose. Okay. Um, What's that other one you got here? So now, so I've got a second one here that I want to try with this red wine. The second cheese you see, it's kind of a, a frightening uh, blue cheese. Yeah, because um, I'm not a big blue cheese fan, but it looks this, pretty. It's very pretty. <laughs> it looks really extremely blue. It's actually very uh, mild and buttery. And this is a French cheese. This is called Forme d'Ambert. And it is from the south of France, from the town of Ambert. So would one have um, a French wine then? Exactly. And so what I've brought here is um, a wine called Circus. And it is from the south of France. Mm. And it's a blend of Syrah and Cabernet. So we've also done, you know, not only do we have this strong, intense, powerful blue cheese, but we're putting it with a strong, intense, powerful uh, red wine to help make the match here. So... Are there uh, pretty much you can just do uh, since we have so many varieties of cheese now and so much different kinds of wine. Mm. So there's any kind of pairing that you could make. I see people all the time sort of doing table red wine and Chardonnay. That's it. Table red wine, Chardonnay. Well, you mean in terms of just you mean in like terms of the wine selection? Yeah. Yeah. you know, people, and we talk, we've talked about yeah. this many times on the show, and we talk about this at the wine school all the time, is that people are, you know, wine is overwhelming. Wine is complicated. Wine is in 12 different foreign languages. You know, a lot of times when people uh, uh, find something that they like, you know, Chardonnay, they, they will latch onto it. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, drink what you love. Drink what you enjoy. You know, don't 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 feel compelled to... Uh, don't feel compelled to change your wine world. But on the other hand, what does happen is that people, you know, after a while, Chardonnay, they reach a point where they say, hey, I, I am 
you know, I am ready for something else. You know, what, you know, what else is there in terms of, of, of white wines? So let me just say, from a person who really does not like blue cheese, that yes. this is really good with, Super, this, isn't it? with this red wine. Yeah. And it must be just because they're both bold, uh, they're, as you say. Exactly. Yeah. And, <laughs> and one of the things, you know how red wine has that um, grippy, sort of dry, kind of abrasive texture to yeah. it? That's what we call tannin. You know, it comes right. from the skin and the seeds and stems of grapes. And on, on a biochemical level, tannin binds with protein. So tannin binds as in with protein. As in, yes. as in cheese, as in meat, you know, as in anything with a, a, a high protein content. So we got this really creamy, and, and it's quite, the cheese is quite buttery. You know, it's not a dry, no, it's crumbly it's blue. Yeah. It's a much creamier blue. So it's super high in um, uh, fat, super high in protein. And so we have this extremely, you know, red wine that, that kind of goes with it. You know, it's working on a it's worth it's working on a molecular level. It is um, actually, and and yeah, yeah. Um, and this is so this Forum d'Ambert. This is the oldest continuously made cheese in France. Wow, not not this. I mean, it looks like it, but not this very piece. <laughs> um, so, and it's two. It's was introduced by the ancient Romans two thousand years ago, mm-hmm. and they've just been making it ever um, ever since. So let me ask you about a couple other varieties of cheese and what wines you might pair okay. with them. So extending out to this blue cheese, this is often some of the stinky cheeses are kind of blue. Yes. What stinky cheeses are intense? Uh, they they <laughs> they can be very intense. And there's and there's there's like the stinky blue cheeses. Yeah. And then there's like the stinky Munster right kind kind of uh, kind of cheeses. And again, there's two ways to go. You can either go with like what we've got here, mm-hmm. where you know these cheeses are like way off the chart. So you go with a wine that's way off the chart. Um, maybe something like port, mm. you know, that's very that's mm. very black, very sweet, very high in alcohol, you know, very extreme in every way. You would put that extreme, extreme wine with an extreme, extreme cheese. You know, it's like, you know, you don't have a heavyweight boxer and a flyweight boxer. You know, that's not an interesting, that's not an interesting bout. You know, when right. you've got a heavyweight cheese, you, you, you know, you want a heavyweight wine with it. Or people go the other way. You go with something more like this Riesling, which can be light and fragrant and flowery and sweet, so that so that now you're 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 putting together opposites. Mm. You've got this strong, stinky, overwhelming cheese, and then this really, really you know, it's like Henry Kissinger and his girlfriends. You know, you got this really <laughs> ugly component, and you put it with this beautiful component, and I, somehow it works, and no one can really explain it. I'm going to let you take the emails <laughs> from the Henry Kissinger lovers. Uh, moving on. I'm just reporting. I'm <laughs> yeah, not judging yeah. him. I'm just right. reporting. <laughs> um, I had a guy here talking about just uh, stuff you should try, you know, in your life. And right. he, one of the things that he had was a combination of Marcona almonds, okay. aged par- Parmesan cheese, mm. And champagne. Oh yeah! And so I just went out and got it all and and tried it. It is incredibly you delicious. Put, did you put it together in a bowl, or how no, did you? No, I, mean, I just you... ate it all together just to see. <laughs> well, what would be so great about this? And it was wonderful. Yeah. So let's talk about champagne sure. and cheeses. Sure. Well, yeah. and uh, well, the people have a lot of really strong ideas about champagne and sparkling wine and what it should be and what it shouldn't be. I mean, some people feel like you know champagne is so delightful and so fantastic and so delicate. You know. You know, you're, you're, you really, you really yeah. should not even have shoes on while you're drinking it. You know, it just it should just be in this pure kind of raw state. Um, but it, you know, champagne and sparkling wines. I mean, I think are great, great food wines. I mean, they go as you say with the with the aged Parmesan, which again starts to develop that crunchy, like crystallized sugar thing. And that sugar is really nice with the sparkling wine. And then you got the Marcona almonds, which have a nice. Um, a little bit of oil mm-hmm. and salt. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, essentially you're getting all your food groups. You got your salt food group, your sugar food group, your wine food group. So it all works I mean, well. It just really goes great together. But people do not, people are shy about sparkling wine with food. They tend to, tend to, um, tend to have sparkling wine kind of on its own. And you're, if you, if you do that, you're just missing out on some great food matches because, I mean, you know, it's great with pizza. Sparkling, uh, okay. sparkling wine and pizza is a fantastic, fantastic. Absolutely. Match. Uh, so a lot of the fatty cheeses, because you think about champagne cutting mm-hmm. 
the sort of the fat from foods is yes. good with fried chicken too, as, as yes. people know. Yeah. So that works as well. Yeah. Uh, so what about brie? We eat a lot okay. of brie around here. Yeah, brie. <laughs> brie. I mean, it's the it's the most famous cheese of France. Um, you know, it's in some ways it's the national France's national cheese. Um, and brie is sort of, uh, you know, what we were saying before about the cheddar in terms of its flexibility. Mm. Um, some people like um, will like brie with a with a, with a cabernet. You know, with a really? strong, yeah, that's and, a strong, and, and that is that is very strong, and that's kind of the extreme reach of where you go uh, with brie. But brie is the kind of thing that, again, um, you can have with strong white wine. You can have it with you know right in the middle of the spectrum: strong white wine, you know, rosé, and then some light red wines. I mean, I think the personally, I think the best brie match for me is the simplest which is brie with uh, Beaujolais, mm. uh, which is, um, you know, the classic bistro uh, wine in not France. Not too heavy. It's, just, it's not too heavy. Mm-hmm. It's got, you know, it's got fruit flavor. It's got weight, um, you know, but it's not a really intense red wine. There's there's some room, you know, there's some room there for some, you know, it plays well with others, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, got, it's got a relatively light presentation. And, you know, one of the things with cheeses is that, you know, you know, the flavors of cheeses get so strong so quickly that they really get out of the white r- wine realm right away. Mm-hmm. You know, they become so strong that immediately we default to towards red, towards red mm-hmm. wine. Uh, but again, you know, brie is right in the middle where it can be really, you know, really flexible. I mean, we'll serve brie sometimes with just some, you know, with some honey on mm-hmm. top yeah, of it. Just delicious. a little bit of honey on mm-hmm. top of it to give it a little sweetness. Um, you can have that with kind of a sweet dessert wine, too, and turn that into a little bit of a dessert cheese. I have to say, you've mentioned a couple of wines here today that have some sweetness to them, which mm. I didn't expect mm. in the in the pairing with yeah. cheese. I would more think of a drier wine, uh, yes. typically. Yes, yeah. that, that I, I think, I think uh, you're right. Uh, but one of the things that we know we like is we like sweet and salty well, that's together. true. That's a good point. We like that. Yeah, we yeah. like that combination. Yeah. Good point. And um, you know, a lot of these cheeses are, um, you know, there's an Italian cheese called ricotta salata. Yeah. And salata means salted. It's packed in salt to dry it out. So, so it makes it a little bit drier, and it gives it a real tangy saltiness. And you know, what's really nice with that is, you know, again, something like this riesling that's got a little bit of sweetness and a little bit of fruit. A little bit of fruit with it um, as well. So, yeah, sometimes we pair flavors. You know, sometimes we pair complementary flavors. You know, like we were saying before, big, mm-hmm. big red wine, big red meat, big crazy freaky cheese. You know, that, you know, you know that makes <laughs> Your sense. Kind. But, but, some, but, sometimes, <laughs> but sometimes we like to match the opposite. You know, and get some nice contrast too. You know. And by the way, just to add, I'm adding so you don't have to. Okay. Cost of this is you can have a a very reasonably priced wine and get a good match. Absolutely. We're just saying that. So thanks. I think I may like blue cheese now, Jonathan Olson. Happy to hear it. Thank you, (laughs) Kelly. We've been talking wine and cheese with Jonathan Olson. He's our wine guy and the founder of the Boston Wine School. Thanks again. You can keep on top of the Callie Crossley Show at WGBH.org. Follow us on Twitter at Callie Crossley. Become a fan on Facebook. Today's show was engineered by Antonio Oliar, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzica. Our intern is Sloan Paiva. We're a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio.